Not even just because it's spiritual, not even just because it's scripture, but because something that makes it extra special, it is, it's so personal. It's so personal. Of course, it's corporate too, as I just said, but it's also so personal. Sometimes people will practice religious things just thinking about the larger scope of the world or the local body of Christ, but communion is also personal. Jesus Christ died not just for us, Jesus Christ died for you, for me, for the individual. Why? Why did he do that? Sure, scripture prophesied about it, he had a plan, but ultimately there's one major reason why he did that, and it's because he loves individuals. God loves individuals. And so, just for a little while this afternoon, I want to speak on this topic, the transforming power of love. There may be no one in Scripture who focuses more on love than the Apostle John. John wrote the book of John, three epistles that also bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Besides Luke and Paul, John wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. Most of what we learn of John is from his own writing. That's pretty nice, right? You can just write about yourself. That'd be nice and awkward at the same time, I guess. But we see his character and his personality shining through. We see his love for Christ in dealings with the early church. And finally, in Revelation, we see his vision for the future. The book of Revelation begins, and John tells readers about this amazing, but let's be honest, just a tad bit scary encounter with God. Revelation 1.12, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, he's kind of talking about this vision, this encounter with God. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands. Standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. I always laugh because we don't think about these things when we're just flying through Scripture and bread reading. Like, imagine you're praying and you turn around, and there is a man standing there, okay? Some of you'd be reaching for a, a handgun or something, you know? I mean, like, you talk about, we just like, oh, yes, these amazing encounters. Well, that's kind of like, whoa, yeah, he looked like the son of man. He's, he's writing about it, and he was wearing this gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were, were like flames of fire, his feet were polished like brass and refined in a furnace. His voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. I've always said, I told you, see, I'm going to be bummed. I get to heaven and God's like, hey, Gary, you know, like, no, I imagine his, his voice thunders like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he laid his right hand on me in the first words. We're reading all about this magnificence, this amazing, this, this, this view of what's going on, and his first words are, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Maybe some of you are in a situation right now we are like hearing about signs, wonders, miracles, what God wants to do, your anointing, calling. But somebody just needs to hear these words. Don't be afraid. I was at the beginning. I'm at the end. I know everything in between. Just don't be scared. Because how many times do we live in fear over things that we 
don't have control of, and we're wondering what's going to happen and how we're going to get there, and God just shows up, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you've seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you see in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So John, he tells us this incredible experience and he falls like he's dead and certainly there's some fear, there's some what's going on and Jesus immediately says, do not fear, I'm the first and last. I have authority, I've already won. He makes it very clear. That's what the book of Revelation is about. He wins. And so John can ask what, all he does is, okay, well, what, what does this have to do with me? Why are you talking to me right now? And he, Jesus immediately tells him, hey, here's what I want you to do. Write down the things that I'm telling you and I'm getting ready to tell you, and I want you to send them to the seven churches. So the whole thing starts off with, I'm not just here to show off and have hair, will uh, like hair and the sash across my chest and eyes like fire. And he writes down all these things, but that at the end of the day, as powerful as God is, he still also longs to be approachable in your life. And he says, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down things, and I want you to send it to the churches. Why? Because Jesus was obsessed with speaking to his people. The beginning of time starts off him walking with Adam and Eve, showing up, conversing. The, we, just, we literally start in the book of Genesis, and he walked with Adam and Eve in the, cool of the gar, in, the, in the cool of the day. You go all the way to the book of Revelation. We're about to read end time things, and it starts with Jesus shows up like the Son of Man, and he's powerful. He says, don't fear. Here's what I want you to do. I want to tell you something. I want you to write this to the churches. Why? Because nothing has ever changed. I long to be in relationship with humankind when I created them in the beginning. And here we are at the end, and I still want the same thing. I want churches to know that I am interested in them. And so, how can one describe God's love? There are some things that, they're, by, by nature, that we could try to say, well, imagine the beauty of a sunset. Or the thrill of holding your first child in your arms. The sight of home after a long distance of travel. There's great things, but for finite man to describe the infinite love of God, that, that poses a great dilemma. It's very, very difficult to explain something that's limitless to someone who is limited. And that's not a knock on you or me. It's, we're all limited. We're finite. And so you, we have a beginning, we have an ending. So when someone says, I have no ending, we can't comprehend that. When someone says, my love is limitless, and when they talk about their love, we can't understand that because we love people, but there would be eventually there's things that they could do or not do that causes us to say, I'm, I'm done, I can't continue this way. But God says, no, I love you like this. And so our finite minds try to wrap our brains around this infinite love. And so how can I try to put in words how much Jesus Christ loves you? Certainly he loves the church as a whole, but you need to understand he loves you as an individual. He loves you as a single human being who he created and he has a plan for your life. The Bible itself contains some great love stories. You know, uh, I don't know if, if, you're, if you're one of those people that like to read or watch a love story. I... I don't need them, but 
There's some ladies in my house that like them. And so Jacob loved Rachel so much that he served his future father-in-law without pay for seven years, only to get to the end of the seven years and go, wait, I married the wrong sister. And he says, eh, sorry, got to do, do another seven years. And he says, and then he writes about, it was but like a day. Man, my father-in-law, he runs a, 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 a tough bargain. I don't know if I'd work for him for 14 days and have him say, it was just like, have me say, it was just like a day working with Arthur. <laughs> See, you could have done that, and you could have hung out with me for 14 years working together. You missed it. But God's love is still greater. Hosea loved his wife Gomer, a woman who was a prostitute to other men while she was married to Hosea. And the story of his unconditional love for a harlot wife is a story given to represent the love of God for Israel and for sinful man. But love, God's love is still infinitely greater than that. The father of the prodigal whose son had wasted his inheritance. He saw him returning home, dissipated, dirty, shameful, dressed in rags. But his dad runs to him, falls on his neck, kisses him, places a ring on his finger, dressed him in luxury robes and declared a great feast. But even our Savior's story could only faintly illustrate the love that God has for us. God's love still greater. The Bible is just this amazing book. It's filled with stories and not just stories meant to just be like, oh, let, let me tell you a story and put you to bed at night. Or No, it's, it's more than that. The Bible's jam-packed with stories, not just random facts, figures, and laws, and rules, because stories are the way we learn. Humankind also has great love stories that they talk about and celebrate and put on Broadway and films and Anthony and Cleopatra and Romeo and Juliet, but none of these even begin to represent the love that God has for us. The ultimate illustration, why is, why is humanity so consumed with love and love stories and relationships? Because we're all looking for something. I don't care how, you can say, well, I'm a single, blessed God, now I'm fine. That's fine, but you're looking to be loved. It doesn't have to be romantic love, but there's something in us that we're all looking for someone to go, you know what, I'm not just trying to change you. I'm not just trying to make you into something that you're not. I'm looking for someone who looks at me and says, I love you for who you are. I love you the way that you are certainly we can grow together and get better together and, and strive for excellence but at the end of the day I want someone who loves me for who I am and a lot of people they will walk out of this church and other churches in America and they will be looking for relationships and they are willing to go against principles found in God's word and they can somehow just oh, I can justify it in my brain because at the end of the day I want it so bad that I'm actually willing to purposely ignore principles to go find that love. But why is this? Because scripture tells us God is love. God, God's not, oh, he's, he's a savior with love. Love, he's a very loving person. We use those adjectives and, and, we, and we talk about things with one another. But God is not, that's not just a, a character of God. Love starts with God. Love, God is the source of love. It literally begins with him. And so he puts something inside of every human being that is longing for love. 
And the ultimate illustration and expression of love is seen in the cross. John 3, 16. I used to hold these up and sometimes you'll still see them at sporting events and things. It says, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth, us, commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. That's such a crucial part of that verse because I did not come to God and say, I, you know, a lot of people will say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get ser- serious about God. I just gotta get my life straight. Some of you might be saying that. Some of you online might be saying that. One day I want to go to church. One day I want to be baptized. I just got to get some things right in my life. There's some things that you don't know, but I need to take care of these things. In 13 years of pastoring and, and years of youth ministry, I've heard so many people say this to me, and, and it's your decision. I don't want to pressure you, but I want to say, stop. You are belittling the, the grace and the mercy and the blood of Jesus Christ. When we say, I need to fix something in myself before I bring the offering to my Savior. That's like a slap in his face. He doesn't need your help to fix you. He loves you exactly how you are. He loves you just the way you are. And he, that doesn't mean that he's never gonna, he's going he's going to transform some things. But he looks at you and he says, you come to me. Bring that and watch what I can do with your life. He does not, we don't, as the old saying, the bumper sticker, we don't, we don't get God to get good. We get, we, we get good to get, we don't get good to get God. We get God to get good. If I wrote bumper stickers, they would be all kinds of jumbled messes. While we were yet sinners, I did not come to him ready. And he said, you know what? I've looked at your resume. I've checked your references. You're a pretty good guy. I think I'm going to go ahead and fill you with my spirit. I think I'm going to start to use your life for my glory because everything checks out. I think you would be a, you'd possibly be a good representation of my kingdom. He, he goes up and he says, I'm going to call a tax collector. I'm going to call a guy who I know is going to betray me anyway. I'll call a fisherman. Society's going, you're calling who? Ain't nobody respect those people. Matter of fact, that guy, we hate Matthew. He's taking our money. Yeah. Just give me a minute with him. Once he feels my love, I think I can transform him. Because I love him. And it appears that the apostle John had to experience the cross in order to understand love at its fullest, both scripture and history, they record John's influence on the early church. John was a man hidden in the background, kind of like Andrew. However, we had his, you know, he had his turn at leadership, reaching as far as Asia Minor, and he outlived all the other apostles. John, the younger brother of James, he was known for his zeal. Like his brother, scripture shows us that he was willing to call down fire at one point to the Samaritan. The Samaritan, do you want us to call down fire? He was ready to take out an entire group of people. Sometimes we do that with our words, right? He also found himself in debates with other apostles about who's the greatest in the kingdom. What is remarkable, though, is that he's remembered as an apostle of love. But when you start reading his story, you're like, hang on, who's an apostle of love? Yes, this guy, John. This guy who just tried to kill an entire group of people and called on fire to burn them up. This is the guy that's the apostle of love. 
Much of his writings about love. He writes about our love for Christ, Christ's love for the church, our love for one another. It's John, beloved, let us love one another. God is love. Love is of God. He's, he's always writing about this stuff. And so the theme of love seems to throw, flow through his writing. However, the apostle of love is not how he started out. It's a quality and a characteristic he, he learned from the Savior, but it took Christ's three-year ministry to get it down. John started out rugged, intolerant, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, impetuous, brash, just as you would expect one of the sons of thunder to be. He and his brother James were cut from the same fabric. John, like James, he aged well and learned from Christ. Much like us, his liabilities were exchanged for assets. He matured. Areas in his life that were his greatest weaknesses were transformed into his greatest strengths. And this can happen in our own lives, too, if we will let Jesus Christ mold us and shape us. John had a passion for truth, and this passion shaped the way he wrote. To the Apostle John, there were no gray areas You read his writing, he wrote in black and white. He wrote in absolutes, cut and dried. He sets light against darkness, life against death, receiving against rejection, fruitfulness against fruitlessness, obedience against disobedience, love against hatred. He just writes it clean, plain. People love John, at least too in mainstream Christianity. Oh, yep, there it is, nice and clear, boom, boom, boom. He's known to draw a clear, distinct line in the sand, so to speak. It's also evidenced in his writing. John uses the Greek word for truth 25 times in the book of John and 20 times in his epistles. No one in scripture except Jesus Christ says more about truth than John. Would you say he was a proponent of truth? Absolutely. However, the young John still had to learn the balance of love and truth that he was so passionate about. John lacked love and compassion for people, believers and unbelievers alike. He was intolerant. He, like Peter and James, were more concerned with who's the most important in the kingdom rather than how many souls are really following Jesus. As apostolic Pentecostals, we, I think, would consider ourselves lovers of truth. Is that fair to say? Apostolic Pentecostals are lovers of truth. We want to look into the word. We want to preach the word. We want want the word to be the thing that lights our path. We're not interested. You know, there's people that say we are are, uh, reformationists. We want to reform what the early church did. We're We're not reformationists. We are restorationists, meaning... I want to go back to the first church, the first century church. I'm not, I want to reform something that somebody else had a thought on. I'm not looking to see what humanity did. I want to go back to the people who were handpicked by Jesus, trained, commissioned, and sent off. Let's look at the first century church. Let's look at the acts of the apostles. What did they do? How did they do it? What was the message? What were the methods? And so we consider ourselves lovers of truth. If you don't adhere to it, you might miss out on salvation. And we must never waver in standing for truth. Scripture says, buy the truth, sell it not, continue in truth. But if we stand for truth and don't do so in love, 
we will be limited in whom we can influence. Because many in our world will not allow you to teach them truth until they first feel love. Just because Jesus loved did not mean he accepted their sin. I think sometimes we're like, well, I love this person. I can't love someone that lives like that. No, you're wrong. When you love someone, that does not mean that you accept all of their lifestyles and choices. Certainly, some of you have children that you love with all your heart, but they're not currently living the way you would like them to live, but your love has not ceased for them. As a young man, John displayed ambitions and, and, and plans for his life, and his motives in the beginning were kind of selfish, lacking humility. Nowhere do we see this more than when he and his brother James, like I said, they walk up, hey, his, their mom, too, can we save these spots for him? And they just want to be the greatest. John did eventually learn to balance ambition and humility, though. We read about it in his writing. Because he never, eventually, never once mentions his own name. He does not speak of himself or reference himself other than the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was always giving glory to Christ for having loved such a man. And John seemed absolutely in awe of the fact that Jesus Christ loved him. When you read his writing, it was really, it gives you the tone, the feeling of, hey, love me. Yeah. <laughs> the one who Jesus loved. The one who Jesus loved. There might have still been a little arrogance there when he was like, yeah, and the, the one who Jesus loved outran Peter. Just wanted to slide that in there. I can still beat him in a race. But it was about, hey, the one who, Man, I don't know how, but somehow he loved me. Perhaps this is John's way of saying my most important identity is no longer my name. It's not being the most important, having the key spot at the kingdom. But I'm a loved. That's who I am. I'm loved by Jesus. Do you know the greatest thing that any of us will ever experience in this life? We all have ambitions and dreams and visions, things we want to do, see, accomplish. But the greatest thing that any of us will ever experience in this life has already been predetermined and accomplished. And that's this. Jesus loves you. He loves you. He not, he not only loves you, he loves, his, he loves his church, but he loves you as an individual, as a, as a single human being. He didn't just die for a church. He died for you. And his life went on, and John started to experience suffering. Probably not what he had in mind when he initially said, I'd like to be the greatest in the kingdom. You know, thinking of the pomp and circumstance and the worship and the, and the, and the spotlights and the hand rounds of applause and sitting next to him helping judge people. Like, he's probably thinking through those things. But Jesus, in all fairness, was like, you, you think you're going to drink from the cup that I'm getting ready to drink? You think so? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do this too. It's, just too. it's the same thing, 2022. We're like, God, I want to be mightily used of you. Really? Yes, no matter what. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything for you. And then we about lose it when our internet don't work. <laughs> part of God's transformation process will usually include seasons of suffering. 
Find me a passage in the Bible where someone was mightily used by God and they did not suffer at all. Times were always great. Things always went well. They had the nicest things, drove the nicest cars, never had health issues, never had anybody betray them. Always things were great. God answered all their prayers. Show me that scripture. Show me that story. Each apostle except John was martyred one by one. His own brother James was the first martyr. And even that, we just think through, well, he still survived. Imagine getting news or seeing it in person. Your brother gets killed for the cause of Christ. These were John's companions, his friends. And with each loss, there was suffering on John's part as well. John was the last one left, left to die in his old age, imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, cut off from those he loved. In many ways, he had, in some ways, I would say, he endured the worst suffering of all. John learned to suffer for the glory of Christ willingly and without complaint. We never see in any of his writing a note of complaint. I mean, imagine some of these things you're writing. Yes, I love God. Oh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But then he let my brother die. And I was frustrated because, man, I'm out there rotting on an island by myself. You'd think you'd kind of slide those details in just so people knew, kind of like, well, just so you know, I went through it. We don't read that. He learned to look beyond earthly traits to heavenly glory. He looked to learn beyond, to move beyond. Can I have the greatest place in the kingdom to, hey, I don't even need to tell you my name. Here's, here's all you need to know. I am loved by Christ. One of the most powerful illustrations of John's transformation is probably at the foot of the cross. Because isn't that where transformation begins for all of us? At the foot of the cross. John's the only apostle who's recorded in the Bible as being present at the crucifixion. All the people that followed him, pray with me, watch with me. I'll never betray you. I'll be with you. Peter denies him three times. Like We only read about one person. It's John. It's recorded. You know, you, you, you think about what, what he probably saw. I mean, he, he, very possibly he saw the nails driven into Jesus' hands. It's recorded that he saw the Savior's side pierced with a spear. And then there's a conversation between him and his Savior. You see, because... All the apostles loved Jesus. But when suffering came about, they let the suffering separate them from the cross. And if we're not careful in 2022, when suffering comes, you got to stay close to the cross. Because when they ran off, suffering separated them from the cross. But John stayed. And because of that, one of the most amazing conversations, imagine, imagine this moment, no one else had this connection with Jesus. Jesus in all his terrible, broken, bloody mess of a body 
Probably couldn't really even see straight all the blood in his eyes. But he tried to look down and say something to John. John 19, 25, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, behold thy mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her unto his own home. Jesus sent his own mom home with John. I mean, I know you say, well, okay, that's, that's not a big part of the story. No. The Savior of the world looked at one man and didn't just say, hey, can you take care of my mom? He says, mom, behold thy son. Son, behold the mother. I just, I just called you family. I just said, this is now your mom. You're my brother. Care for my mama. When John started and said, hey, let me call down fire and consume these Samaritans. I'm not really sure that's the kind of person you'd want to take care of your mom in your older age. I wouldn't be sending my mom to go home to the guy with the temper that just said, we could just, man, I'll tell you, snap, we'll just burn them all right now. Just, they're done. He didn't come off as a model citizen. You want taking care of your mom in her elder years. He told John, go take care of my mama. John now could love because someone else showed him how to love. Something took place in that transformation there. John followed Jesus and heard his teaching. In doing so, he learned the truth. And when you hear truth, something in your soul just goes, oh. That's why on the road to Emmaus, they felt something. When Jesus spoke to, as a 12-year-old on the, at, at the temple, they felt something. Because there's anointing and power that comes with truth. Someone might say, I don't fully understand it. I don't know. I, I've never been taught that. Maybe I wasn't raised that way. But I felt Feel something when you talk. And John, he no doubt felt that. But then John came to the foot of the cross with his love for truth. And he saw the way Jesus died for sins. He saw that he loved the Roman soldiers that actually caused the agony and whipped him and hit him with nails down into his wrists and hands and feet and whipped him and, and mocked him and tore his and, 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 and gambled for his garments. And, and, and John no doubt saw these things. And all of a sudden, man, it wasn't about the seat and the power and the fame and who's the greatest. Man, I love truth. He taught me so much about truth. But as he watched Jesus die and say, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. He learns something, no doubt, about love. Because when you spend time at the foot of the cross, you learn a thing or two about love.
And that's why if we want to love one another through differences, different opinions, hurt, offense, all that, the only way that you last is to stay at the foot of the cross. It's the only way. And once you understand both love and the truth, that's when you can change the world. The apostles seemingly got truth first, but then love. And once they got truth and love, they could change the world. It may seem amazing that Jesus loved a man who wanted to burn up the Samaritans. He loved a man who was started being obsessed with position and status. He loved a man who forsook him and fled and suffered for his sake. He, 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 he loved these people that you go, what, how? But as he looked down from the cross that day, he knew that John now knew how to love. John had been transformed, and the only way that transformation took place was because Jesus was willing to love him through every season. And as you work with people and make disciples, there's going to be seasons when you go, I've already talked to them about this. I cannot believe that they're, what are they doing? I mean, we just talked about this. Love through every season. Because I'm thankful today to be able to talk about Jesus loving John. Because maybe I see a little of myself at times. Maybe you can see some of yourself. Why? Because maybe sometimes we get a little zealous. Maybe a little self-absorbed. Maybe we get obsessed with status and position. And our actions have sometimes led us away from Jesus rather than sticking with Jesus. John's life reflects a lot of our own because we can say he wasn't really that bad of a guy, nothing too crazy, he's a pretty decent dude. But he still needed Jesus. Some of you are here going, I don't know, but you're talking about God will change your life. God will, and you're like, I don't, I, I, don't, I don't really need my life to be changed. I think it's, I'm a pretty decent person, law-abiding citizen, don't have too many issues. I don't know, you're talking about all this change stuff. I don't really need it. But you know what? When John got to spend time with Jesus and spend time at the foot of the cross, he was transformed into exactly what Jesus wants him to be. And you might be a pretty decent person here today or watching online, but when you get to the foot of the cross and you let Jesus transform you, you go from just, hey, I'm a law-abiding citizen, good person, I got a good family, I'm a pretty healthy person, I, I'm not really doing anything wrong, to all of a sudden I'm going to walk in the plan of my Savior. I'm going to be everything that he has called me to be. And so even a decent person... Not just, oh, that person's a terrible person, all the things they did. It's not just, Jesus didn't just die for that person. He died for the person that had the career, was a good person, law-abiding citizen that thought that they were fine. But when you get to the foot of the cross, you can be everything that he calls you to be. And when I read that, it gives me hope because I'm not yet all that Christ has called me to be. 
I hope I'm mightily used by God when I come in this pulpit. Hopefully, he's using me to pray with people, miracles, teach Bible studies, prayer. And I mean, I hope that's, that's cool, but I hope I'm also standing here going, I have not yet attained everything that God has for me. I still catch myself letting him down at times. But John's life encourages me because in loving John, Jesus transformed him into a different man. And in loving us, he transforms us too. I remember earlier I said how many times John wrote the book truth or the word truth in his book. It's, you know, it's something like, I don't know, 25, 45 times total, something like that. But it's equally worth noting that the word love is found more than 80 times in his writing. 80 it's almost twice as much as truth. Does not mean that John no longer cared for truth or that he was somehow no longer standing on truth. It simply means this, and this is powerful. Love became the anchor of the truth he was so passionate about. Love became the anchor of the truth he was so passionate about. To the very end, he was trying to defend truth and intolerant of lies. This son of thunder was still thundering against deception and, and errant theology and sin. The most powerful advocate of love was a man who never compromised on truth. The most powerful advocate of love was a man who never compromised on truth. In this day and age where it seems like, and I'm almost done, the overarching message is one of love all, accept everyone. And there's something in you going, how do I navigate this world that I'm now living? Because I'm not accepting everyone. This is not right. I don't like what they're trying to teach my child or trying to, to, to put on, on, on Disney movies. And I'm not, I don't like what they're trying to put on YouTube. And I don't like what they're trying to put on billboards. And I don't like what some of the conversations teachers are having. And I, I don't like some of these things. And, and so I don't want to accept it. I'm uncomfortable with some of the areas in which I'm, I'm living in this world. The church can sometimes veer into the opposite direction because I don't want to be like the world. And so we embrace truth, but we get afraid to teach love or live, preach love. Because if they're saying accept everyone, love everyone, I'm going to veer this way because I don't, I don't want to be like that because some of those things are sinful. So I'm going to just cling to truth and we forget the love part. But do not feel like you have to choose one or the other. Don't get caught in this, well, are you going to stand for, are you going to love everyone or are you going to just preach truth? I, I am going to do both. Love is going to be my anchor of truth that I'm so passionate about. My goal in this day, in these last days, is love God, just like what he said. The whole law, boil it down to this. I am going to love God, love others, and stand for truth. If there's a mission in my last days that God has me on this earth, however long that is, love God, love others, and stand for truth. And in the meantime, 
Let God's love continue to transform you because the prophet Jeremiah recorded these words to Israel. Jeremiah 31, 3. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love, with unfailing love. I've drawn you to myself. He tells that to Israel, probably in not their shining moment. And I think sometimes we think that I'm doing really well. I've been praying. I prayed yesterday. I prayed today. I prayed. I'm doing well. God, I'm, I'm feeling good. God loves me. But for the person who's here going, I haven't been doing too well lately. And I've slipped. I made poor choices. I even thought about not coming today. I'm not. Uh, I know better. I'm not saying I, I just... And maybe even you get to the place where you're like, I, I question if he still loves me. I mean, how could he? I, I let him down. I've let him down a lot lately. I'm here to tell you he does. He does. There's a reason why you have a preacher preach an entire message on this and reach to someone like you. Someone who is questioning, yeah, but How? Your finite brain is trying to wrap your mind around infinite love. Good luck. Because I can't tell you how he does. I just know he does. He didn't just say he does. But everything that he's done and the words that he's given us, in the actions and taking on flesh and dying on that cross, everything that we remembered and celebrated today points to the fact he looks at you and he loves you so much. But he loves you as an individual, but his love is there to draw you to a place of transformation. That doesn't mean he doesn't love you where you are. He loves you where you are. But he also has a plan for your life. God didn't die on the cross just to accept you for who you are. He died on the cross. His death was not only because he loved you individually, but also he wanted to transform you into what he created you to be. And the place where true transformation can take place is at the foot of the cross. And so if you're here, doesn't matter. This, this is one of those messages, it pertains to everybody. Oh, yeah, I've been mightily used of God. I've just come out of my time of prayer and fast and read the word. I'm really, oh, I've been doing well. You still need his love and you need Jesus. The person that says, man, I, I didn't think about coming today. I don't know if he can still love me. I messed up. Some of it I did on purpose. I know better. You need Jesus. And when you come to the foot of the cross and you say, God, I want to love you with all my heart. I want to love other people. And I want to stand for truth. Those are the people that he can say, we're going to change the world. Why? Because when you stay at the foot of the cross and you're determined to love him and love others, to stand for truth, he can say, let me transform you because I love you where you are, but I love you enough to not leave you there. Watch the transformation that I can do with you and through you and in you if you'll just stay at the foot of the cross. I invite you today to stand to your feet and to just find a place to pray today. I mean, I think if anything, we took communion, we have a lot to be thankful for. But maybe there's a little conviction too about God going, 
hey, it's time for some transformation. I don't want to just leave you there. I love you where you're at. But I'm not just loving you to leave you there. I can use your life and I can do great and miraculous and mighty things. Jesus, help us today. God, help us. Lord, to understand, to even just have a glimpse into the love that you have for us and Calvary, what you did for us, what you're capable of still doing in and through us, Jesus. God, you are so powerful and amazing. And in all of that power and might and wonder, you are still interested in us as individuals. Thank you for your love, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us, for dying for us. Thank you for Calvary. Thank you for that cross.